please remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. And even before we read, I was reminded of Isaiah 66, which says this, On this is whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite at my word and trembles at my word. And we want to look to God's word this morning. Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted of Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much, Pastor Ben, for reading that so well. What an appropriate verse beforehand. Uh, It's good to be uh, together with you. Whenever I see my name in the worship folder as Dr. Moody, I'm reminded, I was just sharing this with uh, Dr. Singley earlier, I'm reminded of how my wife, Rochelle, when she was a young child, used to pray that she would marry a doctor, and now she says she wishes she had been more uh, specific. (laughs) So, anyway... The point is God's Word, isn't it? We come with all these titles and authority and all this sort of thing that goes with, but really we're all gathering together around the Bible. And I do sense that's particularly important these days. I wonder whether you do. This story we have in front of us is part of a much bigger story that we've been looking at together in the book of Genesis. And the reason why I felt compelled as I was praying about what to study this this spring Uh, and this series of The New Beginning, the reason why I felt so compelled about it is the sense in which it seems to me that we as Christians uh, in the West and in our culture at large need to grasp again the story of God, the narrative of God. We need to put in place again the foundations. For we are living a time when people do not know where they come from and where they are going, and they wander around, they cannot interpret pieces of data, they do not have a firm grasp on the story. And as we look in this passage, as Joseph quotes, you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good, he's setting in place this whole story 
that the brothers are meant to interpret their lives through. There's a lens, a framework that God gives us in the book of Genesis and, of course, in the Bible as a whole that helps us to interpret the data in front of us. And I want to say to us this morning that is extremely significant today. As you know, of course, I'm from London, and many of you will be aware of the terrorist attack that took place just yesterday in London, and it grieves me. Uh, I know that area very well. But I'm mentioning it to you this morning, not just because I'm from London and it's in the news. I'm mentioning it to you this morning because I am astonished once again at how hard it is for our political leaders, and I'm afraid sometimes our religious leaders, to have an interpretive grid through which they can understand what's going on in the world. They do not seem to be able to grasp that there is evil in this world, and yes, there are evil people. And the reason for that, of course, is the story, the narrative that we have been told in the West, and this story has impacted the church. This is why you can go to churches sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, and never hear that three-letter word, sin. We have been told over and over again that actually we are good people, that people are born good. And the reason why people do bad things is because they were not given the right opportunities, they do not have the right education. If you just let them into your homes and your hearts and you give them the right education, the right framework, you teach them the right kind of things, you give them the appropriate opportunities, then the innate goodness in all of us will emerge. And what we want to say as Christians is, What a load of rubbish. The truth is, and the reason why we can know this for sure, is because we read it in the Scripture and we read it in our own hearts. We do not need to read the news, we just need to listen to the internal desires that we all experience. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, it is possible that even God's people, even the brothers of Joseph can plan something for evil. Yes, that is the world in which we live. And the book of Genesis wants to confirm that conviction in our minds and in our hearts so that we would have an ability to be able to interpret the world in which we live and therefore construct our way of operating, our commitments, our convictions, our lifestyles in a way that is in accordance with the truth of God. As I say, how we need this today, I I was thinking of a a little sort of hook that would help us grasp, I think, what is going on, and this is the one that came to my mind. Some years ago, of course, a very famous speech was given, uh, which had as its opening line, I have a dream. What a wonderful speech. Of course, those were difficult times in this country, I know, in all sorts of ways, but what a wonderful speech. And as I look at that and think today, I'd be asking myself, if we observe the rhetoric of our culture, whether it's the speeches that we hear, whether it's the movies, whether it is the books we read, how often do we hear someone stand up and say, I have a dream? How often do we hear someone stand up, as one political leader did at the beginning of their term of office, and say... Where we're going, we won't need any roads, quoting Back to the Future. The future is bright. How often do we hear someone say that? And the answer is almost never. Instead, what is it that people are saying today? It's not, I have a dream. What is it? Here's what I think people are saying today. I wonder whether you will agree with me. 
Not I have a dream, but I have a bucket list. In other words, there are certain things, certain experiences, certain places I want to go, certain things I want to do that I've got to grasp now because I do not sense I'm a part of some big story. I do not sense my life is going anywhere. I do not really deep down think that there is an eternity, an infinity to come after death where this moment in time will, from that perspective, seem extremely passing and temporary. And therefore, it is wise to invest in that reality. I do not sense any of those things. Instead, I must get what I can now. And therefore, what is on my mind is what I should eat for lunch. I must have the best lunch I can get. What vacation I should have. I must have the best vacation I can have. I must check these things off my bucket list. And what I want to say to you this morning is to look at this passage. Instead... What we need to do is look at life the way that Joseph looked at life. And our passage is simply divided in two sections. First is a look to the past, verses 15 to 21, and then a look to the future, verses 22 to 26. So first, the past. And I want you to, as it were, put on the lens of this way of understanding the story of life in this, um, as it were, end of this series on beginnings. So 15 to 21, a look at the past. And what I want to notice, want you to notice right at the beginning of this uh, section on the past is what Joseph's brothers are doing. Their father was dead, verse 15, and they're saying to each other the following, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? In other words, they are anxious. They are divided from their brother. And this anxiety is going round and round in their minds. They know that Joseph proffered them forgiveness beforehand, but that was when dad was still alive. And now dad has died. Could it be that Joseph is going to enact his revenge? And so they're talking about this together. What are they going to do? And they come up with an attempt at uh, reconciliation. Well, verse 16, they send, first of all, Joseph a message. They sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Some scholars uh, very much doubt whether that was actually the case. It's possible, in fact, that uh, Joseph's father had, in a sense, no real idea what his sons had done to Joseph. And this was sort of covered up from him. It's possible. Some scholars think that. I'm not sure that's true. But anyway, it's also possible that these were indeed their father's instructions. It seems a little unlikely, but perhaps so. And uh, they say, this is what uh, Jacob uh, told Joseph to do. Uh, Forgive your brother the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sons of the servants of the God of your father. And when the message comes to Joseph, he responds in a way that it seems as if the brothers would have least expected. He weeps. What a godly man is this. Of course, some people cry more than others. Other people are just English and they never cry. 
There are different temperaments and cultures, and perhaps Joseph was the kind of person who did cry often. Winston Churchill was said to cry a lot. It's not a sign of weakness. But I think he is weeping, not just simply because he's an ancient Middle Eastern, not simply because that's his culture or his personality, but because he realizes that his very own brothers still do not believe that he has forgiven them. You know, oftentimes when we have hurt someone, we need to hear that we are accepted again, not just once, but over and over. You know, when your child does something wrong and you correct that child and they say sorry, they often need to be assured that you still love them and that any discipline is only an expression of that love. And the same is often true in human relationships. Your friends will let you down at some point or other. People in the church will sin. Newsflash, this church is full of sinners. The opportunity is how we respond to it. So note Joseph's response. First, he weeps. Of course, the way that uh, the brothers were going about trying to get reconciliation was not particularly wise, and their fear is underlined by the fact that they send a message. They don't first go personally. They first send a message. They write a letter. They fire off an email. You know, it's almost always a mistake to try to broach sensitive topics that might be controversial relationally, and to do that in writing, almost always a mistake. So church, let us not do our reconciliation by email. Let us take the bold step to actually look the person in the eye and find out whether we have misunderstood and, and all the rest. Well, they don't do that, but they do eventually go um, to see uh, Joseph. They come and they throw, throw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But then look at Joseph's words, verse 19 to 20. He says the same sort of things that he said when he first revealed himself to them a long time ago. But he says it again. They needed to have it repeated. So verse 19, he says, do not be afraid. And then again, uh, verse 20, uh, don't be afraid. Uh, verse 21, do not be afraid again. Am I in the place of God? He's now humble. They are actually bowing before him in the fulfillment of his dream. But Joseph realizes that uh, it's really all God's plan and God's work. And the only one to be worshipped is God. Now, isn't that important? We live in a day when, because God is so absent, we find we must exalt humans. Isn't that the reason why there is such a strong celebrity culture? We need someone to worship. And if we're not driven to worship God, then we'll find someone else to put on a pedestal. But Joseph, a man who, you remember, was second in command of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen... Am I in place of God? So you who are perhaps very gifted, perhaps very successful, 
would you take this as a model of humility? Or the Apostle Paul, who thought of himself simply as a jar of clay. He was very gifted. A jar of clay with the treasure within. Am I in place of God? And then he puts back in place all this theology that we uh, have been considering in the uh, story of Joseph. Verse 20, you intended it for evil. He doesn't hide from their evil. Yes, you did intend it for evil, but God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, he does not downplay the evil. He does not say, you know, really it was not that bad. He actually looks the evil full in the face. You know, it doesn't help anyone to have their sin airbrushed out or photoshopped out. It doesn't help anyone to pretend that what they have done was not really wrong. Yes, when we are in Christ, we repent and put our trust in Him. Our sins are separated us from us as far as the east is from the west. We are white as snow. We are reconciled completely as we remember at the table. Yes, for sure. But what makes that so wondrous and what is the fuel for the worship that God's people experience is the extraordinary contrast between the reality that we, yes, do evil things, and we, yes, are sinners. And yet, God has set His love upon us. That's what makes a church sing. Not this, oh, you're not really so bad after all, aren't you? Aren't you guys all so lovely and beautiful? No, you're not. Nor am I. But because God has set his love upon you, you are lovely and beautiful. You are children of the living God. You are his forever. And the wonder of the holy God setting his love upon you, upon me. Well, yes, it does lead us to worship. And so he is a putting in place that theology. And then he speaks tenderly. I'll provide for you and your children, for your little ones. It's often said, isn't it, that people do not care how much we know until they know how much we care. And I think it is certainly true for those of us who have children that we know someone cares for us when they care for our children. And so it is so important, the ministry that we have with children downstairs, up in the, uh, uh, the, room, uh, the rooms up there and across the street. All this ministry is an expression of God's fatherly love for children. And those of us who serve in those areas, in our children's ministries and our youth ministries, are serving in areas that express the fatherly love of God, the very heart of the gospel. And if you're thinking of an area to serve in, let me commend that to you as being something that does indeed express the truth of God's fatherly care for us, which Joseph here 
expresses and embodies to some extent in the way he treats his brothers and their families. And then note his tone. We're told he speaks kindly to them and comforts them. He reassures them. Sometimes uh, we perhaps are wary of going to encourage someone when we don't think that we have quite the right words. Someone else is better at speaking or someone else is better at writing a note than we are. And we're not sure that we have the appropriate felicity of communication or the profundity of insight to say anything and then we hesitate. But often the message of the gospel can be carried along with how we speak It's truth in love, and he spoke kindly. So all this is a a re, a new realization, an interpretation of their past. Let me commend it to us. If you're looking back at your past, and you're wondering why you did this or that, or whether you made a mistake, or whether you have failed in some way or other, all that may be at one level true. There may well be evil that you have done, or that has been done to you. But there is a bigger truth. That those mistakes, those failures, those events, those evil things are in God's mysterious sovereignty. All intends to land at the foot of the cross and be for God's glory and for the good of his people. And therefore you do not need anymore to be stuck in a sense of failure about your past. If only I had done that. If only I got that degree rather than the other degree. If only I married him rather than her. Don't say that out loud right now. I would advise against it. All that can go because God, your heavenly Father, is arranging the circumstances, even the choices, even the decisions of your life, even the evil, profound and difficult and mysterious, as I know that is, for your good. And it is so appropriate this morning that we are celebrating communion, for of any place could teach us this truth, it is the table where the Son of God is crucified and yet it is the greatest good that is ever done for God's greater glory. So the past and then the future. And he says verses 22 to 26 and on its surface it looks a little superficial. I've often thought what a strange way to end the book of Genesis. It begins with such drama and it ends with a burial. I mean really. But actually, there's a lot more to it than that. He stays in Egypt, verse 22. He lives 110 years, which at the time was meant to be, I'm told by scholars, the ideal length of life for an Egyptian. He sees uh, the third generation. And then Joseph speaks these words to his uh, brothers at the end of his life. And they are highly significant. And they are a look to the future. He says, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not, I think, given some special extra prophecy or spiritual insight at this moment, what he is doing is he's relying upon the promise that was given to Abraham that God's people would 
be slaves in a foreign land and then be rescued. And he confirms this again when he says, God will surely come to your aid, or more literally, to visit, he will visit. A Hebrew way of emphasizing that God will come to rescue them surely, and you must carry my bones up from this place. Hebrews 11, the great hallway of faith, speaks of Joseph. But its only mention of Joseph is about this act. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise and ultimately to the city eternal. As Hebrews puts it, looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. There is Joseph at the end of his life. He who has experienced so much He is surrounded now by his brothers. They are entirely reconciled to him. And the promise and the prophecy that was given to Abraham, Joseph now is able to look forward even as he faces his own death. To look forward to the movement of God's people to look forward to what God is going to do through His people to bless all nations. Again, what a different world we live in. I have a bucket list. The end of our life, I've got to make sure I do this or that or the other. I've only got another 15, 20 years to go. I've got to make sure I get this done. Instead, Joseph is living his life as God's people when they are in the walking in faith have always done. They are seeking first the kingdom of God and living their lives to the advance of that kingdom. What a difference that makes. Our future as Christians is always glorious. The glory days for us as Christians are always in the future. So we look differently at the past. We're no longer going, why did I do this? Why did that happen? Did I make a mistake here? God has woven all that together for our good and for his glory. And we look differently at the future. Which means that our commitments, our confidence... The way we use our time, the way we invest our talents, how we serve, all that now becomes aligned for a glorious purpose. See, that's why our Western world is running out of hope. That's why our Western world does not have a sense that the future is going to get better because it has lost track of where we have come from and where we are going. There was a um, Second World War general who was um, incognito in a European city. He wasn't wearing his general 
outfit. A couple of soldiers had got lost, and they were wandering around this uh, city in Europe. They came up to this man, American man, but didn't think he was a general. They just were chatting away, and he, they, said, uh, they said to him, do you know where we're going? And the general looked at them rather sternly, these two young soldiers, and said, do you know who I am? And they said, now we're in trouble. We don't know where we're going, and he doesn't know who he is. And that's pretty much where our world is today. But not the church. We have hope and a future. And we know who we are. We are God's loved children. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we are a part of your good plan to bless all nations through the gospel. We pray now, Lord, as we come to your table, that you would uh, convict us of our sin, that we might be assured of your love, filled with your spirit, and so sent out to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.